Welcome to the Life with COVID podcast series brought to you by Investec Life. In a three-part series, we'll be talking about managing cancer during the pandemic. My name is Kathy Mulhashana. Today, we'll look at the impact of COVID-19 on cancer care. The COVID-19 pandemic has affected all areas of our daily lives, including medical care. At the beginning of the pandemic, many patients with cancer struggled to receive treatment for their cancer. It was due to hospitals canceling or delaying surgeries, including chemotherapy and radiation therapy. The Rates of transmission and low vaccinated numbers are also part of the ongoing issues surrounding the competing risks of death from cancer versus death or serious complications. Today's podcast will discuss the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on cancer prevention, screening, diagnosis, treatment and research across the African continent. Let me welcome my guest, Michael Humans, who is the Investec Life CEO Michael, hello. Hi, Kathy. And Professor Carol Ben, the head of Helen Joseph Breast Care Clinic at Helen Joseph Hospital, recognized internationally as a leader in breast disease. It's a pleasure, Carol. Hello. Hi, Kathy. We've come out of a period where the entire focus of the globe is on COVID-19. The conversation around some of the different burdens of disease that we battle with as a society have fallen somewhat into the background. Cancer is one of those that has taken a back seat. Carol, let's talk a little bit more about how that has been affected. So let's look at the problems that occurred and let's look at the, I think, sometimes incredibly good outcomes that have come over the last 18 months, particularly in oncology. So for all of us, me included, a lot of us chose and did not screen. Those who are quite health aware and understand the concept, say, for example, in women's health, of going for your mammograms and ultrasounds yearly, if you are slightly higher risk, and in terms of international guidelines, two yearly or three yearly, depending on where you were in the world. So how did this impact breast cancer? It meant that we saw less early detection of cancers, because ideally you want to pick up cancers radiologically diagnosed, not clinically diagnosed. That means when you feel them. That's in terms of breast cancer. So we, we didn't see many during the course of March 220 to this year, March 221, when we started rolling out vaccination programs. Then we also saw patients who elected not to come in who had healthcare concerns. So they were told due to lockdowns, stay away, stay away from the hospitals. I saw this most importantly in my government unit where there was a fundamental concept of yes i know i have something significantly wrong but i've been told to stay away so where i 60 percent of my cancers diagnosed at helen joseph were advanced cancers that went up to 80 percent from a private point of view we didn't see that to such a big extent because we had six months of non-screening and then we had people going back into their screening so whereas March to June, July, 
was relatively quiet on smaller cancers being diagnosed, early radiologically diagnosed cancers. From July, we started seeing my levels in terms of cancer diagnosis went up almost to the equivalent to the year before. What was actually surprising, at some stages, I got the impression that we were actually diagnosing more cancers. And I always think it's not even for this topic, stressors and health cares and what's happening and cancer. And we seem to see more among stressors, more cancers being diagnosed. Carol, we would have also had people who had been diagnosed with cancer prior to us coming into this pandemic. So the closure of hospitals, what impact did that have on patients who are already receiving treatment for cancer? So significant in the government environments, not so much in the private environments. All we had to do, which I think is never a bad thing, is learn to do things differently. So we had to realize that we had to personalize oncology care. So the international guidelines, particularly around breast cancer, showed that we shouldn't be operating on patients and rather giving what we call more primary oncology treatment. So I saw tremendous advances in more people, surprisingly, which we had been doing in the unit for a long time. In fact, we had a big publication, international publication, on what we call primary endocrine therapy, giving people hormonal treatment prior to their cancer surgery. And I'm a strong promoter of this because I always say oncology is the umbrella under which all cancer surgery sits. So you can't say I'm cutting off a breast, which you shouldn't be doing today anyway, or cutting out part of a breast or operating to avoid oncology. So we were forced into a concept of more people taking time with their options and choices around treatment, which is a good thing. We were forced into concepts of people having primary oncology treatment for a duration of a couple of months, which gives you an opportunity to see how the cancers respond to the treatment, because no one dies of cancer in the breast. It's cancer's ability to spread. So for me, that was a positive. We saw changes in less recipe oncology, where people were having into chemo units and having IV chemo and bigger chemo regimes, for want of a better word, understanding that oncology and chemotherapy is really cytotoxics. So oncology medication is a combination of cytotoxics, targeted therapies and immunotherapies. What we found was there was more time taken to work out sensible and maybe simpler protocols for people. Could you give them um, oral medication instead of IV medication? So I really found that created huge advances going forward. In fact, in March this year, I did something on one of the shows on the UK released a dual target therapy oral treatment which is amazing, which means instead of people coming in to an oncology unit every three weeks for their treatment, they were receiving it. And we were seeing a faster push out on change, which in oncology, understandably, we like to know, is there a two-year and a five-year and a seven-year and a 10-year benefit? So what, I, what I'm grateful to have is things like interoperative radiation. We can cut down on treatments. And there's been a huge trend in the concept of less is more. 
in oncology and also more virtual. So now in my field, I personally didn't charge for any virtual consults. I feel as a someone who has to examine someone's breast, I can't really do that virtually. But from an oncology point of view, to have a virtual consult with a person, understanding medical backgrounds, you can have more communication with someone off-site. We had virtual multidisciplinary meetings and as a result, our meetings have grown very, very big in that where previously we had 12 or 20 people around a boardroom table. Now we have 35, 45 people. We have the top pathologists from Pretoria, different units, and we have more integrative and more interdisciplinary comms that can actually be recorded and uh, we don't do things for around medical legal, but it means you have recording, visualization, and better communications between doctors around patients. I also found with this previous concept of the global village where we, you know, we'd fly somewhere and see somebody. Now with people and families being stuck all over the world, we set up virtual family consultations. So where you couldn't have four or five people into a consult room, you would now someone, some IT people. And the first thing I did was had a young IT genius who changed my life so that we could do things like FaceTiming and Teams meetings with the child in New Zealand and someone in the US and have a better holistic approach to our patients as opposed to you are diagnosed, you see Dr. X, you get rushed into treatment Y at rapid speed. So those for me are positives. So there's been a lot of adapting then and Absolutely. a lot of reshaping the way in which medical practitioners do their work, if I'm listening to you correctly. Which is a good thing because we don't adapt so well. You know, we can be a little bit um, obsessive in following the same road all the time. So I think we've had to adapt to create better service for patients where previously it was all about the doctor, not so much about the patient. And that for me was a tremendous aha moment that has been achieved in this pandemic that I think is a good thing. Michael, you of course on your end are dealing with the issue of risk. You have to look at what exactly it is your clients that you service, what the potential risk factors for them are. Let's talk firstly about cancer and the extent to which you have a client base that about 60% of some of their claims are cancer related. So how worried were you coming into the pandemic? Yeah, naturally very worried, Kathy. So we've always said that one mustn't downplay the risk of COVID, but COVID isn't the only thing out there that, that one needs to look out for. You know, so the biggest concern for us throughout has been not just coping with COVID and the new challenges that brings, and one of which is mental health and mental illness risks that have been well documented and, and something we've spoken about for a while. But one of the other big concerns for us has been the point that Carol mentioned, which is around the risk that people haven't been going for their screenings, for their regular checkups, for their elective procedures, and particularly around cancer. You know, so we continue to think that it may impact people's health down the line, both in being able to pick up cancer at all or being able to pick it up early enough where getting treatment sooner can make a real difference. And that plays a, a material role in our business. So you see what's really important is to understanding that screening is health economics, okay? So the big five that you screen for are breast, cervical, that's women's health, prostate in men, stomach and colon, and skin, melanoma, and surprisingly enough now, lung. 
going to see more and more lung cancer screening. So from a breast point of view, most of the world, in fact, we're very fortunate in South Africa, those people have access to medical funding. When you have a screening mammogram, it's not actually a screening mammogram, it's a full mammogram and ultrasound. And some people do it one yearly, two yearly. From a gynae point of view, I think we're going to see changes in screening around our ability to do HPV testing with around pap smears that will change and also change who needs to have their pap smears more regularly. We're going to put a point in fact here that what helps around screening is vaccinating our young girls for HPV. And in fact, there's nice data coming out of the US about even vaccinating people in the older age groups to decrease head and neck cancers, which is another big up and coming from an oncology point of view. So from a screening point of view, we definitely had a loss on scopes, gastroscopes and colonoscopies, and those should be done five yearly or 10 yearly, depending on what they find, and definitely also screening from a melanoma point of view. So I would like to see, and it would be a good opportunity for you guys, there's no reason why we can't, there can't be some form of, how do you set up virtual dermatological screening? more mapping in this. I do think there will be more concept of AI and digital. So I, I see the trends in things such as you swallow a little chip and you can do your stomach to your colon down screening. So all these things make for good opportunity to change practice. But I agree with you. I'm, a, I'm like one of those people who screen madly and screening is not for sissies. Screening is not a Disney walking in the park. It's when you go looking, there's a high chance of finding. But what we, that's why you want to be sensible with what you screen for. Just pointless screening my brain. It might be an empty vacuum and you find something there you can do nothing about. But when you screen, you want to screen for things that you can change management on. And that's very important. So we encourage people to screen. So the first thing I did when we popped out of our, I think we had, two lockdowns as I went for my gastroscopes and colonoscopies and went and did all the other things that we had to do. So that's important. We want to encourage screening and we want to encourage vaccination. Can I say something about that some of the, our, our SARS-CoV-2 vaccines have been developed from labs that are strongly working on cancer vaccines. So that is super, super important for people who listen to this to know about. So Michael, given how important screening is, as Carol has just emphasized, did you find that you were having to do anything different to reach out to clients and to just gently suggest and encourage them to still go out there and not forget about these important tests? It's a bit tricky for us as a, as a life insurer because we typically don't have that primary medical relationship with the client, but we've tried as far as possible in communications when we interact with our clients, our policyholders, to get the message out and build this into our conversations, you know, which often come from a financial planning or financial advice perspective. But I think, you know, we're all duty bound to try and get the right messages out at the moment. Of course, the impact of the lack of screening or the low rate of screening is likely to be felt a couple of years from now. Uh, Carol can tell us exactly when we're likely to see the full impact of it. From your perspective, again, as somebody who's dealing with the risk factors, you do the numbers. Are you expecting that perhaps in the next two to three years, you're going to see some changes in terms of the kind of claims you're having to deal with? Potentially. 
And we're not sure yet. I think time will tell. We'll have to still see the evidence and, and see how things play out. But it is, I think it is a concern. It is a risk. Not just the just some of the stats that Carol mentioned, but you know, we've seen we've seen some evidence from the UK where clearly the government health information from the NHS is more detailed than we have here. And um, and I think some people do believe and they've modeled up situations in which it may result in or and particularly lack of cancer screenings may result in cancers being detected later or not being detected, which could have an impact on the severity of cancer rates and eventually impact death rates in those countries. So I think it is a risk. Uh, the one thing that struck me while while Carol was talking just now is that, um, you know, maybe it can be offset a little bit by some of the advancements in cancer treatment, some of the personalized oncology you were speaking about. And look, maybe coming out of COVID, we'll have better cancer vaccines in future. We can we can hope so. But there's certainly some, some risk and some uncertainty going forward. Is there specific data that you are going to be looking at when it comes to these screenings and what the numbers, at least the national picture shows? The biggest thing that we, we as insurance look at is actually the experience in the industry and particularly in our client base. As Investec, we're a little bit different to some of the other kind of more traditional larger insurers. We monitor our clients quite closely and we try and pick up the trends as soon as they're obvious. Um, but it's not always easy. You're dealing with imperfect data a lot of the time. So I think for me, what's interesting, there has been data out of the US and the UK to show slight increases in slightly more cancer pickups now at a slightly higher stage. Remember, it's not like we've pandemic for three to five years. So I, I will say that SARS-CoV-2 is here. It's out the box. Okay. It's not going away. But for me, what the, the other multifactorial factors we have to take into account is that you mentioned mental health, but there were a lot of issues around lockdowns and probably in, lack of exercise, increased alcohol, increased other habits that we don't encourage. And that in itself will also partly play a role in what we're going to see in the next year or two. Let's talk about patients that you may have seen. Some of those who are on cancer treatment and also contracted COVID-19. So, you know, my, my heart goes out to the bravery of cancer patients during this time who were pre-vaccination, who the, the fear of going and giving yourself, and I want to actually tears in my eyes, you're going through treatment that's going to knock your immune system when there's a virus around that we know affects people who have got low immune systems. They were amazing and incredibly brave. I am grateful from my unit per se, and I always find lost is such a euphemism because we didn't lose them. We know exactly what happened. I had under five patients who succumbed related to SARS-CoV-2 infections and their cancer. We had far more people I saw on the government side who came in with appallingly late and advanced cancers and also um, slightly more in, in the private setting as well where people had come in with advanced cancers and and again you mentioned on the the mental health issues so we set up a lot of online um, psycho-oncology forms to work out everything that was going on I mean one severely traumatizing was a young lady who her husband drove her to three different hospitals to bring her in from an oncology point of view and she um, died in the car so 
cancer, and I mean, it was an advanced cancer, but it doesn't take away the tragedy and the trauma, and particularly of doctors and healthcare workers trying to triage people into safe healthcare environments. And I think it's, it's been a very difficult time, and we must really shout out to those who did their best to try and help, and also for those who have unfortunately demised during this time as well. An incredible time of loss, and it must be said, Carol, that of course, medical workers like you have really been the true heroes of this period. Well, I think that, the patients are, in. actually. So I think it's the cancer patients who are the heroes. We just sit and do our thing, yeah. Michael, let me bring you in here again. And, you know, we're talking about the future and how you ensure that you're future-proof or better prepared for the complexity that lies ahead. Are we likely to see risk adjustments as a result of of these late screenings, what can some of your clients expect? It's certainly something that, that all insurers are thinking about at the moment. But to my point earlier, there's still a lot of uncertainty. At this stage, it's probably still a little bit premature. We don't think it would be fair or right to, to as an example, charge clients more for policies at the moment when, when there's still a lot of uncertainty, particularly about how cancer prevalence and severity is, is, is going to unfold. We don't think so at the moment, but, but we don't know. You know, so we've got to watch the space quite closely, monitor how things progress, and then and then see. We very much try and base what we do on on statistical facts and evidence. You know, so we'll we'll evolve it over time, but but also trying to take into account the the whole need for insurance is about trying to be there for people when they need you most and helping them during difficult times. That's what we've got to try and do in the in the best way possible. In fact, you're bringing me to my final point for you, Michael. What is it that you would want? your clients to know during this period where I think if we listen to Carol, it's been absolute turmoil for different families, different individuals who've experienced not just this pandemic, but those who may have loved ones who are already struggling from other chronic illnesses. No, that's right. I think we touched on it earlier. We've all been in this together and everyone's been trying to do the best that they can to cope, to get by and hopefully come through it. With vaccination, with hopefully the economy starting to grow a little bit, hopefully there's some light at the end of the tunnel, you know, and people can get through it. Carol, your parting shot? Um, I'm just going to encourage everyone so, to vaccinate, and whether you have cancer or not, there's almost no contraindication to not vaccinate. And what we want for this country is to have a vaccinated, improved economy and better health care. That brings us to the end of the first episode of our three-part Life with COVID podcast series brought to you by Investec Life. And of course, today we've been focusing on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on cancer care. Join us for episode two of the series where we take a look at cancer and COVID-19 vaccinations. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investic Life Limited is a long-term insurer and an authorized financial services provider.